Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Fernando Forsen is a psychiatrist associated with the Rush University in Chicago. He also holds a Ph.D. in history of mental illness in the 13th and 14th centuries in Europe. He's also done considerable talking about the history of mental illness treatments in the past. This is not frequently enough discussed, so I invited him to do so with us, and he kindly agreed. Dr. Forsen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your invitation. This is a very large topic, and... And as I prepared for it, it became more and more evident to me that it is as important as learning any other mental health treatment tool because it gives us perspective. So let's begin. When was mental health first seen as an illness and perhaps not as a dangerous aberration of some sort of demon or devil phenomena? When did people start looking at it as an illness? Let's start with that. This is a very good question and at the same time difficult to give an answer to it. It's important that we think about mental illness as something that have always existed. Even nowadays, in order to understand mental illness, we use models from animals. We have mice models for depression and anxiety and psychotic disorders and so on. Based on that, we may believe that mental illness is something that have existed in mammals and they suffer, they have anxiety. So from an evolutionary viewpoint, we can see that in human beings, symptoms that we have nowadays have existed since homo sapiens. So they probably had anxiety and psychosis and other symptoms as well. And even Neanderthals, people could argue that have some of the psychiatric symptoms that we have nowadays. Nonetheless, it is difficult to study these symptoms with accuracy because these symptoms sometimes are abstract symptoms that are depending on our ability to put those symptoms into language. So, for example, we can study human fossils and see that people probably have diseases such as malnutrition, for example. We find fossils from Neanderthals or Homo sapiens from 40,000 years ago and so on. In order to understand human suffering, in a way that we could it could be similar to the way we see human suffering nowadays, we have to look at the history of writing and the history of literature. Some of the first examples of that could be the papyrus of Evers in Egypt with the description of psychiatric or psychological symptoms. For example, the Epic of Gilgamesh that is considered the first book in human literature that we can see descriptions of psychiatric symptoms in the Enkidu and Gilgamesh, etc. And also the classic text of Greek medicine, such as the school, the Hippocratic School of Medicine, in which already we see some classification of mental illness that are similar to other medical problems. So a medical approach was already taken in uh, Greek medicine in antiquity. When we go back into antiquity, what type of treatments did they have at the times of the Greeks and the Romans and into the Middle Ages? Were they hindered or modified or defined by Mm -hmm. myths? And what were the treatments like? So in, in medical antiquity, medical approach existed already. The theory that they used is what they call the theory of the four humors. This is a theory that comes from Greek philosopher Theocles is the one who started talking about this. And later on, the Hippocratic school embraced this theory of the four humors. And what they believed is that an imbalance between these four humors, which were mainly the, the phlegm, the yellow bile, the black bile, and the blood, 
an imbalance in these four humors could call a dyscrasia. And dyscrasia was like an imbalance in the four humors. An equilibrium in the humors would result in eucrasia or health in general. And this is very similar to the concept that we have today of homeostasis in medicine, in which we are trying to, we desire the, an equilibrium between all the different variables that we have in our body. This thinking of equilibrium is, is a thought or an abstract idea that perpetuates in the history of medicine. So the Greek used to think that an imbalance in several uh, humors could cause mental illness. So, for example, they classified mania. Mania was not like bipolar disorder, as we see now in, in DSM-5. Mania was considered extreme agitation, irritability with the ability to control the person. So in the concept of mania, we will have what we call now schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So it would be more mania in the wider sense. But this idea of mania has been inherited in nowadays as well. They also talk about melancholy. And melancholy is a term that we still use as well in DSM as depression with melancholic features. Melancholy means excessive black bias. Melancholy is the Greek word for that. Melancholy was more a syndrome that would resemble more hopelessness, despair, anhedonia, depression. And in DSM, we would see this form of depression, sometimes catatonia. It's hard to find an equivalent without saving differences, but we can see parallels there in which this thinking has been inherited until nowadays. Sometimes they use the concept of uh, phrenesis. It was more of a mania with fever. And the mania with fever was even used until the Enlightenment, uh, this idea of mania with fever. This could be more similar to the ideas that we have nowadays on delirium or encephalitis and so on. So this model continued to exist in Greek medicine, and it was inherited in European medicine, especially in, in Islamic medicine. And then when Christianity began to dominate in society in the Roman Empire, many of these classic medical ideas were lost, but they were still somehow preserved. And we have some examples of that, like, for example, Bartholomew Anglicus in England and some other examples across Europe. Later on, especially in Spain and in Sicily, where there was constant communication with Islamic medicine, we started to translate the Greek text from Arabic into Latin, and we started to recover much of this medicine of Hippocrates and Gall. The treatment started to change after that. So we have always had a coexistence between spiritual treatment that were carried from the thinking of Christianity and the medical treatments that were inherited from classic medicine migrations and people leaving one area to go to somewhere else for political reasons or whatever reasons, and they're bringing their ideas, they're bringing their culture, they're bringing their language. Have the migratory issues contributed to the understanding of mental illness? It's just a fascinating overlap. Your thoughts on that, please. Well, this is a very interesting question, how migrations can affect the understanding of mental illness and mental health. In Greek medicine, we have treatment that was generally more conservative. It was focused on preventive medicine towards this balance of the four humors. And it was later on with Galen that people started to propose the idea of bloodletting, something that was practiced in classic medicine and in medicine and even the 19th century. For example, George Washington is thought that he died from complications from excessive bloodletting. But this classic medical treatment that was incorporated in Europe with the help of understanding of Islamic medicine was later brought to America. So, for example, when the Spaniards arrived in America, at that time, the Maya or the Inca population or the Aztec population living there, they had their own methods to treat mental health problems. 
that were confused with spiritual problems at the time as well. And much of that was lost with the arrival of the Spaniards that started to educate people there or bring in classic medical ideas. So this is a great example of how migration of uh, European people into a new continent where there were Native American people can affect the way we practice medicine and mental illness or mental health problems as well. This has other implications as well. For example, now in the United States, we are making a great effort to expand our ideas about mental illness in other continents. Many departments of psychiatry are trying to explain American ideas about mental illness in China or in Africa or in other countries. What may happen from this is that their own ideas that Chinese people or African people may have about mental illness may be lost as well. In the future, we may be criticized as well because sometimes we say, so how American understanding of mental illness people can have in Africa or China? So probably very little because they have all of their explanations for mental illness. We try to educate these people with these ideas but at the same time, they may start losing some of their own ideas about mental illness. For example, some of the shamanic remedies that people use to treat mental illness in the Native Americans are being recovered now. And some people are using like ayahuasca, rituals, or other shamanistic medicines to treat mental illness or, or depression. And the Spaniards are now criticized, or the influence of Columbus or some of the conquistadors is being criticized as something that maybe exerted a negative influence in the way we lost some potential remedies that these people were using at the time, and we imposed the classic medicine. People have criticized the influence of the migratory ways of the Europeans in America or in the so-called new continent. In the future, people may criticize these globalization ideas that we are trying to expand our ideas of mental illness, may be criticized in the future. At the same time, in the U.S., we are receiving immigrants from many different countries, and also we are incorporating some of their ideas of how to treat mental illness. And that's how acupuncture or meditation or mindfulness are being embraced in American psychiatry, as well as some potential remedies. It's a complex thing, but the thing is, sometimes when we think we're doing something that is going to be good, in the future, it may not be seen as that. It may be seen as something that was imperialistic or predatory or something that replaced prior cultures that had ideas that today they could be useful. So migration is a double-sword weapon. It may come with new ideas that might be good, that we have inherited nowadays, it could be potentially be helpful. At the same time, when we receive immigrants from different countries, they can bring ideas that may enrich our culture as well. Indeed it is, and it raises the questions as I'm listening to you that mental illness may actually be a broader phenomena than our particular, we tend to look at it too much as a abnormality in the biochemistry of the brain. Now, that being said, there are many people and good people who do go to psychologists and other pastoral counseling and get good care for real problems, but if we don't look at the cultural background, from which the person comes, shall we say their mother tongue of sorts, we actually may miss what aspect of their presenting problem needs to be fixed. This is a very interesting point that you're bringing here, because in classic medicine and in Europe and in the United States, we see mental illness, we have a medical model for mental illness. And this is related to Michel Foucault's ideas as well during the Enlightenment, in which we start to rationalize mental illness and we use a rational approach to explain mental illness. We see mental illness as something that is wrong, something that should be treated, 
something that shouldn't be there in our society, something that is a problem. In other cultures, people see psychosis or mood disorder as something that is not necessarily wrong. For example, we know that schizophrenia in India has a better prognosis. Some people with schizophrenia in India may find a path in society, may find or somebody that can be useful for the society, and they become more integrated. Once we start thinking of mental illness as a medical problem, that is very tricky because we can treat it and improve it, and we can develop psychopharmacological treatment to improve it. But at the same time, in society, we see it as a problem, and these people become excluded uh, from society. That is what Michel Foucault in Madness and Civilization points out the confinement of these people. So we exclude them from society, and we put them into the asylum. At the same time that we are uh, making big efforts to treat these people, we are excluding them from society, and that may affect the prognosis. For example, if we go to India to educate people about mental illness, it would be interesting to think how that is going to make an impact in the prognosis. And if we start to educate Indian psychiatrists the way we treat schizophrenia in the U.S., it may affect the prognosis of schizophrenia there in a negative way. And it's important that we think about it. Maybe we also learn it from the way schizophrenia is approached in India from society, not from psychiatrists. Maybe we're going to start getting ideas from that so that the mentally ill in our society are not as marginalized as they are. Because we know people with mental illness in our society, especially those with severe mental illness, consider outcasts. Many of them become homeless or they ended up in jail. And this is very tricky as well because nowadays we are making big efforts from the American Psychiatric Association to fight stigma. How do we fight this stigma of mental illness? Are we educating society? For example, many times we widen the criteria of psychiatric disorders so that a lot more people meet criteria for psychiatric disorders. Depends on how do we define mental illness. Because if we talk about psychiatric symptoms, almost everyone in society is going to have psychiatric symptoms at some point. This is something that is important that we think about. With this fighting of the stigma that we have nowadays, we are able to somehow make people believe that mental illness is in the wider sense something that most people, a big majority, could deal with or could have in their lifetime. Then we may be successful at fighting the stigma because the majority will be susceptible of having mental illness and it will be more accepted in society because many people have mental illness. If people who have mental illness continue to be the minority, especially those with severe mental illness, will continue to be rejected by society and will continue to be a marginal population. So it's very difficult to know what is going to happen. I think it would be interesting if we could also look at what happened in the past, before the, during the Renaissance or the Middle Ages. What was the status of the mentally ill? What is the status of the mentally ill in India? And why they may have a better prognosis and maybe those ideas that they have to have them better integrated in society, maybe we can learn from those ideas and see how in public health we could embrace some of those ideas and put them into practice. That kind of discussion, which is very complex, but it would be interesting that we start thinking that way. Tell us a little bit about the concept of demonic possession. and Is it still around? This is a very interesting point. Now in society, we view demonic possession as exorcism as something negative. And in the history of psychiatry, we normally think, oh, the mentally ill didn't get treatment in the past 
First, it's important to know that classic medicine existed also in the Middle Ages, and it consisted with spiritual theory. In demonic possession, people also have negative ideas for the patient. But if we are able to put things in historical context, what could be a better treatment than the treatment proposed by Jesus in the gospel in a society that was dominated by the Christian religion? If I go back to the 13th or the 14th century, and I take a person who is believed to have demonic possession, and I offer psychopharmacology instead of doing an exorcism, most people, and the patient included, are going to reject my treatment, and they are going to embrace the treatment proposed by Jesus in the gospel that is going to be practiced by the priest. It may be more effective because we know many of these treatments are placebo, not biologically effective. Well, we know placebo or psychotherapy exerts a biological impact in the brain as well. So it's going to be more effective in that context and in that society because mental illness is very dependent on how society is feeling about what is mental illness and how should the problem be treated or addressed. So for that society, demonic possession and exorcism is a better explanation and a better treatment than the treatment that we may use nowadays. So it's very, very important that in psychiatry we view things in the historical context. Otherwise, we may end up being judgmental and not understanding, and we also may fail to see problems in other cultures as well. So it has implications not only from a historical viewpoint, but it has implications as the way we approach other cultural understanding of mental illness in other countries and in other societies. So it's very important that we start thinking this way in order to understand these things better. Some Pentecostal churches and some sectors of Catholic Church that still believe that demonic possession is a, is a valid explanation to understand erratic behavior. There has been psychological development, and I'm talking about Freud and all the people who followed him, actually some even who preceded him, of the notion of hysteria and its association predominantly with women. That may be a little too narrow, but the hysterical undercurrent of neuroses. The concept of hysteria has been around for a long time, however. Can you just talk a bit to that? Yeah, this is another aspect that has been often misunderstood. So when we mention the word hysteria, immediately we hear negative connotations as a syndrome that was used to marginalize female or women in society. Hysteria was a Hippocratic idea. In the times of Hippocratic school, there were some syndromes that were often more seen in the female. And that was thought to be that was a problem with the organ that was different from the men. People thought there might be a problem of excessive phlegm in the uterus. That was incorporated into classic medicine. In the 19th century, it was very important to differentiate some of the syndromes that was called hysteria. Later it was changed to histrionic, and later it was changed to all the possible symptoms in hysteria as we have now in DSM-5. In DSM-5, we eliminated this word hysteria to avoid negative connotations, but we still use conversion disorder, now changed to functional neurological disorder, somatoform disorder, illness anxiety disorder, etc. So we have the whole cluster of one syndrome now has divided in, in several syndromes as well. But in the times of Freud and Charcot, it was very important to differentiate between the two because at that time they didn't have neuroimaging, so they couldn't differentiate if a person was having actual epilepsy or a person was having multiple sclerosis from somatization. So it was very important to use hypnosis to differentiate one from the other and establish a prognosis. And later on, Freud came with this free association technique that we call now psychoanalysis in order to provide a treatment to these people because there was an interest, somatization symptoms 
what can we do about it? How can we treat it? That's how psychodynamic or psychoanalytic psychotherapy became very important in the society of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. The difficulty nowadays is that the syndrome has divided into multiple syndromes. It's very difficult to do research about it. And I think that's how the syndrome now is kind of like stuck because research in somatoform disorders it's very controversial sometimes. So when you say that the syndrome is more prevalent in one genre over the other, when we try to do come with objective data, society is going to have a reaction to it. So people are trying to be very careful nowadays about how to think about this syndrome, how to conceptualize this syndrome. So a syndrome that is difficult to conceptualize, create controversies on how we're going to think about it, Obviously, it's going to have difficulty of how we're going to do research about it or how we're going to do treatment about it. So as soon as we feel more comfortable about how we define the syndromes, we'll be able to come up with better research and better treatment. Amazing. That's amazing. So many thoughts. Are we teaching people coming into the mental health professions this history? Are they getting this perspective? My answer to this question will be naturally biased because I am a history enthusiast. I think nowadays we live in a society that is highly specialized. So we tend to tell people you need to specialize in something as soon as possible, even when people are not ready for that. Even when people still don't know what they want to do, we let them know that it's a problem because they have to specialize in something, even if they still haven't figured out what they want. The result from that is that people become too early specialized in something. We, in medical students, were telling them from their first year, which sort of specialty you want to do? People, I have medical students nowadays who tell me, I want to do interventional cardiology in their second year of medicine or in their third year of medical school. So this can be a problem. We specialize people so early that they fail to get a general background and a general culture about different aspects, fail to get a general background of medicine. For example, it would be important, in my opinion, to think about the alternative to that, encourage people as much as they can to continue cultivating themselves in history, uh, humanities, culture, languages, Latin, Greek, philosophy, all these things that are now less and less encouraged in our education. It's very important for us in order to understand the whole picture. When we specialize too early, we miss the whole picture. And if we lose the whole picture and the whole idea of how our specialty has evolved, it will be difficult for us to come up with new creative ideas in order to advance and make progress in the field. When I talk to psychiatry residents, sometimes they are taught they have to memorize DSM-5. They fail to understand how DSM-5 evolved from a history of phenomenology from Kraepelin, and that is somehow related to classic medicine and Hippocrates. And if you don't understand that, you memorize DSM-5, but you never understand DSM-5 very well because you don't know where it comes from. If you don't know where it comes from, then you cannot come up with new ideas of how to improve DSM-5. So I think, in general, that a cultivated society, an intellectual society, will have a better chance to understand, to evolve, and to adapt. And that will be better, in my opinion, than a highly specialized society. But this is just my opinion. That will tell if I am right or not. This has been fascinating. Dr. Fresenda is a psychiatrist in Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us again. This was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much for your opportunity to share my thoughts.